Hello and welcome to Hugh's Joy of Food, a bite-sized podcast celebrating all that's amazing about everything edible, from the simplest snack to the fanciest feast. I'm Hugh Smithson-Wright, and this week on Hugh's Joy of Food, I review a thrilling West African supper at Shisharu in Brixton, tackle the thorny issue of when and how to complain in a restaurant in Ask Hugel, and haters look away because pungent polarising Marmite is my treat of the week. Each week on Hugh's Joy of Food, I review a restaurant in some way, whether it's one I've eaten at recently, a takeaway, or a make-at-home meal kit. First, a disclaimer. My job as a restaurant PR and consultant means that I'm paid to promote the interests of the handful of restaurants I represent. If I feature a client on this podcast, I'll make that clear, like I do on my social media channels, and in all cases, I'll make it clear if all or any part of a meal I review was complimentary. You can rest assured that everywhere I review, I recommend. This show is about the joy of food, so if you're looking for vicious eviscerations, this probably isn't the podcast for you. With that out of the way, it's time for this week's review. Ever since it opened in August of last year to enthusiastic reviews, I've been meaning to visit Shisharu, a West African restaurant in Brixton on Market Row, part of the bustling covered market, which in the past decade or so has become home to some impressive independent restaurants, and more recently to a couple of the better chains. But despite Brixton being quite literally just down the road from where I live in South London, a combination of lockdowns, other commitments and Shisharu's at first rather limited opening hours, since much extended, meant that it took me until a couple of weekends ago to finally make the very short journey there. Better incredibly late though than incredibly never, and my patience was more than rewarded by one of the most exciting meals I've had in a long while, coupled with some of the loveliest service. Shisharu occupies a tiny little space, seating I'd guess only about 20, plus a couple of tables outside, but it packs a lot of character into it. The front is painted in a striking black and white geometric pattern, while the interior is painted a warm orangey pink, with an open kitchen at the back, where chef Joke Bacare and her team can be seen hard at work. Also tiny is the menu, just five starters and three mains, but small is often perfectly formed, and that turned out to be the case here, as being a party of three, Dave, our friend Simon, who we'd bubbled with in lockdown, and me, and the recommendation being that you order two to three dishes per person, we decided right away to just order everything. Literally, the entire menu. All the small plates came pretty much at once, which worked out perfectly, because it meant that one of us could be tackling one dish while someone else tucked into another, avoiding the clashing of cutlery which can happen when three people try to share one dish. Ekuru, a sort of savoury cake made from beans, came topped with a crunchy pumpkin seed pesto and served with a thrillingly hot fruity scotch bonnet sauce, which despite being warned about the spice level of by our lovely server we scooped up every drop of, and I'd have bought a bottle of it were it for sale. Fritters of stockfish reminded me of the croquetas of bacalao you might find in a Spanish or Portuguese restaurant, but here came with a crunchy cassava crumb and a lively citrus sauce for dipping. A similar but thicker sauce accompanied plump sardines, butterflied and cooked over a fierce heat to blacken the skin and just cook the flesh through without drying it out. Deceptively simple but very clever stuff. 
Delicate chicken sweetbreads, spiced and roughly chopped to create almost a tartare, were fun to scoop up with plantain crackers. But perhaps the best of these five fantastic plates was bavette, deeply minerally steak cooked to a blushing medium rare, sprinkled with yaji, a fragrant Nigerian spice blend, and served with lip-puckering pickled mushrooms. Every mouthful provided a mix of smoky, spicy and sour, and it was the sort of less is more dish, really just three ingredients in perfect harmony on a plate, that I wish more chefs could master rather than overcomplicating things. I really can't pick a favourite from our three large plates. They were all so finely balanced, complex and just plain delicious that it would be like asking a parent to choose a favourite child. Ayamase was a bowl of rich, dark goat meat, stewed to tenderness with green iru, fermented locust beans. Imoyo was a large fillet of cured fish bathing in a tomato broth, really more of a loose sauce, slicked with vivid green herb oil. This was one of those examples of expert layered nuanced spicing that starts off almost slightly underwhelming, then gradually builds the more of it you eat, until by the last mouthful you're wondering in a good way what the hell just happened. Last up was confit aubergine, on paper the least exciting dish on the menu, but far from it in practice. Two fat halves of aubergine, confit until spoonably soft but still retaining some structure, in a velvety peanut sauce, with shito, a Ghanaian chilli condiment, and sunflower seeds. It had just the right balance of softness and crunch, of sweetness and spice, and showed that it's possible to offer vegan dishes that are every bit as exciting as anything else on a menu – something a lot of restaurants still seem to struggle to get right. Instead of side dishes, at Shishiru you can order a side set of rice, plantain and cucumber salad. It's meant to serve two, and our server very kindly offered to make us up a half portion as there were three of us, but as I don't tend to eat a lot of rice, we found that one was fine between three. Even this was excellent, with perfectly cooked rice and thick slices of plantain for soaking up the various sauces, and cooling cucumber salad as a foil to some of the more fearsome spicing. We'd ordered all of the savoury dishes, so of course we had to have both desserts on the menu, moringa mousse with baobab meringue and black sesame caramel, and plantain and baobab ice cream with lime granita. These were absolutely stunning, like everything that had gone before. The pistachio green mousse, more tart than sweet, contrasted nicely with the sherbetty crunch of the meringue and nuttiness of the sesame caramel, while the ice cream with granita managed to be both indulgently sweet and cleanly refreshing at the same time. Having started with cocktails, which for the sake of objectivity I have to say with the evening's one slight disappointment being rather on the tiny side for £9, we drank a couple of bottles of a very decent South African red from the wine list which, like the menu, is short and sweet and covers all the bases. There's a good selection of beers too, if beer's your thing. Now I mentioned that the service was as brilliant as the food, and it really was. As well as thoughtful gestures like offering us that half portion of the side set, our super friendly server asked our names at the start of the evening and used them throughout it, which is so much nicer I think than being guys or gentlemen or sir. And in between cooking up a storm in the kitchen, Joke herself comes out and serves some dishes and checks in on every table, telling stories of the origins of some of the dishes and answering guests' questions. You can tell that Shishiru started out as a supper club, as it retains that feeling of homely informality, while being a very polished and professional operation. For the entire menu, a round of cocktails, two bottles of wine and service, we paid just over £70 a head, which felt like excellent value, even allowing for those rather tiny cocktails. 
Without the booze, we'd have been looking at only about £45 a head, and there's a set lunch menu at under £30. So really, you've got the flexibility to spend whatever suits your budget and still experience Joke Bacare's exhilarating, intelligent, finely balanced and fabulously spiced food. Regular listeners might remember that the very first restaurant I reviewed on Hugh's Joy of Food was a Coco, and that within that review I also mentioned Chukus, both, like Shishiru, restaurants specialising in West African cuisine. All three are completely different in terms of style and experience, and all three opened in the past 18 months or so. I find it incredibly exciting that, while West African cuisine has long been available in some parts of London with large West African communities, particularly along the old Kent Road in South London, it's now being celebrated and showcased in such a high-profile way by some incredibly talented chefs and all across the capital. Discovering new foods and cuisines is one of the best things about living in a city, and I can't think of a restaurant that, both through its menu and its innate understanding and delivery of true hospitality, does more to encourage discovery of West African food than Shishiru. Take my advice. Book now, take friends, and order the entire menu. For all information, visit Shishiru, that's C-H-I-S-H-U-R-U, Each week, I answer a listener's burning culinary question in Ask Hugel. This week, Henry from Gloucestershire writes, Hey Hugel, when is it okay to complain in a restaurant and what's the best way to go about it? Henry, this is such an important question because I think it's one that a lot of listeners will wish they'd ask themselves. Times were, as recently as a few years ago, when it was generally held that the British hated to complain and would sooner say a horrible meal was heavenly than be seen to make a fuss. But the arrival of social media and review sites like TripAdvisor changed all that, spared the awkwardness of having to complain face-to-face by platforms which allowed them to air their grievances to a sympathetic, albeit virtual, audience. The British suddenly decided that they loved to complain about everything from phones not being answered to a waiter punching their dog. But as I've said in a previous answer about the new rules of dining out after lockdown, complaining after the event and online isn't actually complaining, it's moaning, and they're not the same thing. For those of us who aren't keyboard warriors, however, which I'd wager applies to the vast majority of my listeners who seem generally to be an especially lovely bunch, it can genuinely cause us anguish trying to reconcile an instinctive urge to speak up about something that's bothering us, and the equally natural instinct not to want to upset anyone. So I'm really grateful, Henry, that you've asked about something which I suspect causes a great deal of others a great deal of unnecessary anxiety. You ask Henry when it's okay to complain, and to that I would say, whenever something isn't or doesn't feel right that's actively affecting your enjoyment of your meal. But for your complaint to serve any purpose, that is, to have whatever it is that isn't right put right, it needs to be done at the time, while you're actually there, and the restaurant can actually do something about it. Now I know, of course, that there might be occasions where you don't want to complain on the spot, because doing so could do more harm than whatever it is that you're not happy about, on a date, for example, or when you're hosting a business dinner, or where you're someone's guest and you feel that it would make them uncomfortable if you complained. In these circumstances, I think it's fine to wait until you get home and then either call or write to the restaurant setting out your complaint. 
But in these circumstances, you have to accept that the quid pro quo for your not complaining at the time is that the restaurant will be limited in what practically they can do by way of resolution. They can't cook to medium a steak that you've long since eaten rare and that has already passed through you. I think it's also very important when thinking about when it's okay to complain to understand when it's not. I don't think it's okay to complain if you just don't like something that's served as described and as it's meant to be. The simple fact of paying for a meal doesn't entitle you to expect that you will absolutely love everything or that everything will be perfect. A burger not being the best you've ever eaten, for example, isn't grounds to complain, unless, of course, the restaurant has recklessly claimed that it would be the best burger you've ever eaten, in which case knock yourself out. But a burger being so overcooked as to be inedible, say, or missing a vital ingredient, I was quite genuinely once served a burger in which the chef had neglected to remember to add the actual patty, are definitely times when it's okay to complain. As well as knowing when it's okay to complain in terms of in which circumstances, it's also important to know when it's okay to complain in terms of at what point in time. I've said there's usually little point complaining after you've left the restaurant, but there's also little point complaining while you're in the restaurant if you've already eaten or drunk the thing it is that you want to complain about. You can usually tell if there's something wrong with a dish or drink within a couple of mouthfuls, that a sauce has gone sour, say, or even on sight, for example if your martini's been served with a twist instead of olives or your glass is chipped or filthy. It's not fair on the restaurant if you only complain about something once it's all or mostly gone, as in my experience they're certain to want to check what's wrong with it and replace it, which they can't do if it's already in your belly. If the server's already left the table, get their or anyone's attention as soon as you can. Annoying as some people find it, most restaurants now expect their servers or a manager to briefly check in on every table that everything's okay, which presents you with the ideal opportunity to say, actually I think the kitchen might have forgotten the dressing on this salad, or I'm pretty certain that this salmon is tuna. And those examples lead me very neatly from the when part of your question, Henry, to the how, because I'd always recommend phrasing, and indeed seeing, a complaint as feedback rather than criticism. The very word complaint can fill us with dread. To me, it sounds an awful lot like conflict, and I think many of us involuntarily expect that a complaint will result in a confrontation. Which, of course, it can if it's presented aggressively or condescendingly. Tell a chef, proud beasts for the most part, that their food is terrible or wrong or inedible. And however much they might want to help you, they're naturally going to feel and possibly become defensive. Frame your complaint as an observation, however, and all the heat is taken out of it. I'm worried that this chicken looks rather undercooked. Would it be possible to change it, please? It's a very different interaction from, This chicken is raw. Are you trying to kill me? As is, I wasn't expecting the sauce for this to be quite so sour. Could you try it and tell me if this is how it's meant to taste? From, This is absolutely disgusting. Take it back. Be specific, too. I'm not really enjoying this because from the menu description I thought it would be much spicier will get you a lot further than I don't like it. Raise a concern constructively and 99% of the time it'll be resolved quickly, without fuss and to your satisfaction. In the 1% of cases where it's not, you have two choices. You can either resolve to contact the restaurant after you've got home explaining that you did try to resolve things at the time Or if you want to get things fixed there and then, you can of course ask to speak to someone more senior than the person you're dealing with. This is often not the Karen move it might seem. A fault in a lot of businesses, not just restaurants, is that frontline staff aren't sufficiently empowered or trained to resolve complaints, so they'll try to deal with things within the parameters available to them. 
Asking for a supervisor or manager can bring forth someone who, for example, is allowed to refund the cost of a dish or even a whole meal, or simply feels sufficiently confident to go and tell the chef that someone's not happy. I'm not defending the need to do this. In previous jobs where I've managed teams of people, I've always championed them having all the tools and authority they need to resolve any issue themselves. But not all businesses are as enlightened. Which is never the staff's fault, by the way, only the management's. So for goodness sake, give them a break. Lastly, do be prepared to back down if it transpires that whatever it is you're complaining about turns out to actually not have anything wrong with it. I remember with a shudder the time I complained in a restaurant that the hot smoked salmon I had ordered was cold. Having never come across hot smoked salmon before, there's a hyphen between the hot and the smoked which was missing on this menu, I thought it was smoked salmon served hot, which I was intrigued by. So while I could quibble over the absence of a hyphen, ordering out of curiosity something that by your own admission you're not familiar with doesn't entitle you to complain if you don't like the look of what turns up. An explanation of why something is how it is and that that's how it's meant to be is as much and as valid a resolution as correcting and replacing something that isn't how it should be. Now that's it from the customer perspective, Henry, but I'd like to finish with a few words for any restaurant owners or managers who might be listening. Henry's had the good manners to ask how he should go about making a complaint, but a lot of restaurants could do a great deal better at handling one. I've said already that frontline staff need to be empowered to resolve complaints, It never ceases to amaze me how little authority some businesses give the very staff who are best placed to nip a complaint in the bud by, for example, waving part of a bill or offering something extra on the house by way of an apology. Also, you need to stop seeing complaints and the people who make them as a problem and see them as an asset. Several years ago, I worked for a number of years for a public sector complaints handling body and trained under one of the world's leading experts in customer service, Mary Gober. One of the central principles of Mary's method is that a complaint is real gold, treasure it, by which she means that every complaint, whether on the surface of it justified or not, is a valuable opportunity to interact with a customer, hear what they have to say and reflect on whether it presents you with an opportunity to learn and improve. And a complaint resolved well is certain to result in lasting goodwill from the complainer. So in summary, Henry... Complain when there are grounds to, as quickly as possible, as constructively as possible, and to someone who's in a position to actually resolve matters. And restaurants, equip your staff to deal with complaints themselves, and at the time they're made to them, and see them as something you can learn from, not an attack to be repelled at all costs. I hope that answers your question to your satisfaction, Henry. But if it doesn't, well, at least I hope you'll feel more confident complaining about it. If you'd like me to have a go at answering your food-related question, you can tweet me at hrwright or send me an email to hrw at hughrichardwright.com. For my final segment, Treat of the Week, each week I share something food or drink-related that's been putting a smile on my face. This week, it's that pungent, polarising paste at least some of the nation's favourite savoury spread, and certainly mine, Marmite. I try not to reference current affairs too much on this podcast, because I'm conscious that many of you won't be listening when an episode goes out, and could in fact be listening weeks or even months later, so mentioning something that's been in the news might not be relevant by the time you come to listen. But if I say that Marmite was in the news this week, 
It won't particularly date the episode, because thanks to a combination of the huge affection it's held in by the British public and some exceptionally clever marketing, the Unilever-owned yeast extract is very rarely out of the news. In this case, it was in the news for two reasons. Firstly, because a brewery announced that it had launched a beer in which Marmite was an ingredient, a cyclical move considering Marmite is a byproduct of the brewing industry, and secondly because Nigella Lawson had revealed that she'd started substituting Australia's ersatz alternative, the weirdly synthetic-tasting and gluey Vegemite, for the venerable Burton-on-Trent-made original in her famous Marmite pasta recipe. Now, I know the esteem and affection in which Nigella is held, affection equal almost to Marmite's, But I think I can pull rank here, because when I was a perpetually broke student in the mid-1990s, a good 15 years or so before Nigella published her recipe, I would quite often boil up 10 peas worth of pasta and toss it together with a tuppence worth of I-can't-believe-it's-not-butter and a teaspoon of Marmite to make a cheap, substantial, tasty supper. I'm not saying I invented Marmite pasta, which, nor to be fair, does Nigella, who credits the recipe to another cook, albeit not me, but I think if anyone's entitled to say which yeast extract is the right one to use, it's me, and I say Marmite. As for the beer, well, I'm not much of a beer drinker, so I'm not sure I'll be trying it, but I'm certainly a Marmite drinker. It's notoriously difficult to get the dregs out of a jar of Marmite, thanks to its wide-shouldered, round-sided shape, not unlike myself, and believe me, I've tried everything from a silicon spatula to a bespoke China Marmite spoon. So rather than let any go to waste... At the end of a jar, I'll fill it with boiling water, replace the lid and shake it up until the marmite's dissolved and I'm left with a hot, nourishing, yeasty drink, not unlike a consomme. Beer isn't the only thing marmite's been added to, to varying degrees of deliciousness and success. Browse the supermarket shelves and you'll see marmite hummus, marmite peanut butter, I actually prefer marmite and peanut butter, marmite crisps, marmite rice cakes, delicious, and even marmite chocolate, which is fantastic. If you think about salted caramel, it's much the same principle, adding a whack of umami to the sweetness of chocolate. As well as adding marmite to pasta, it works as an ingredient in other dishes too. I've mentioned before in a segment on comfort food how highly I rate BBC Good Food's next-level macaroni cheese recipe, in which marmite is an ingredient, but I also love to add it to all sorts of sauces, soups and stews. You should try this, even if you're a marmite hater. I'm not here to persuade you to like marmite if you don't, only to tell you how much I do. But used sparingly to add depth, richness and umami as an ingredient rather than a flavour, I'm certain you'll thank me. There have been myriad special editions of Marmite over the years, mostly just limited edition commemorative jars containing the unadulterated product, but there have been some variations on the original 1902 recipe. The first that I remember was Guinness Marmite, which I really liked, the addition of Guinness giving it an almost chocolatey note which I found irresistible. If the Valentine's-themed Champagne Marmite was somewhat underwhelming, it was more than made up for by Marmite XO, a version matured for four times longer than usual to give it an even more intense flavour. Such was the popularity of XO that I see from Marmite's website that it's now back on general sale – a first for a special edition, alongside Marmite Dynamite, a chilli-infused iteration which I've yet to try, but will be looking out for in the breakfast aisle. But of course, the very best way to enjoy Marmite is in its original form, and as originally intended, spread thinly on hot buttered toast or crumpets, which you might remember were last week's treat of the week, which makes a crumpet with Marmite and butter, itself a previous star of this segment, pretty much my holy trinity of treats. 
Such is the apparently polarising nature of Marmite. I say apparently because the you either love it or hate it slogan was actually a 1990s invention of their incredibly smart marketing people, that for something to be Marmite or elicit a Marmite reaction has entered the language, not something that any other branded foodstuff can claim to the best of my knowledge. But made up or not, I know without any shadow of a doubt which side I'm on when it comes to Marmite. And if Nigella's decided to switch allegiance to vastly inferior Vegemite, well, good for her. It just means there's all the more marvellous Marmite for me. That's it for this week. Thanks ever so much for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, you can tweet me at hrwright or send me an email to hrw at hughrichardwright.com. And I hope you'll join me next week for more of Hugh's Joy of Food. Hold up. 